Let me make the songs of a nation, and I care not who makes its laws. Andrew Fletcher of Saltoon, 1703 or something like that. Today we have a downer of a topic, I'm sorry to say, but one that we probably shouldn't ignore. Shootings, that is what seem to be undirected killing sprees by people with guns, uh, seem to be happening more frequently, and they are certainly getting more news coverage lately. As seen in uh, Francisco Opreza, 38, uh, has been charged with killing five people in San Jacinto County, Texas, on May 1, I believe, after his neighbors asked him to stop firing his weapons in his yard. A month earlier, in Nashville, Tennessee, Audrey Hale, 28, was shot and killed after opening fire in Covenant Elementary School and killing six people. Here, we like to put the place in politics, and we're in luck. We don't have to wade into this topic all by ourselves from this perspective. The godfather of geohistopolitics, uh, you know, geography, history, politics combined, is Colin Woodard. And he wrote about the subject of shootings recently using the power of a new institute dedicated to looking at America as a collection of regional cultures. This is the nations he established in the book American Nations. And the institute is Salva Regina University's Nationhood Lab. A quote from Woodard's article. The geography of gun violence and public and elite ideas about how it should be addressed is the result of differences at once regional, cultural, and historical. Once you understand how the country was colonized and by whom, a number of insights into the problem are revealed. Woodard's team analyzed both homicides and suicides, but instead of looking at the data state by state, they grouped county-level information into the broad cultural regions of America that Woodard had already defined and that we talk about all the time on this podcast. We're talking about the Yankees in the North, the Deep South, the West Coast, the Dry West, the Midlands, all these cultural groups that we don't learn about in school, but are very evident once we start looking at how we interact as a nation and in politics in particular. Here's a few of the findings from that study. Once you stop looking at it state by state or Republicans and Democrats start looking at it in these this regional context. The region of New York City comprises the safest part of the U.S. mainland when it comes to gun violence. That is uh, what Woodard would call New Amsterdam, the Dutch-founded colony that takes up uh, parts of New Jersey up into New York State, but not upstate New York. Uh, safest place, comparable uh, to Switzerland, actually. The regions uh, Florida and Texas belong to, that is the Deep South, have per capita firearm death rates three to four times higher than New York City's. The Deep South is the most deadly of the large regions at 15.6 deaths per 100,000 residents, followed by Appalachia, <laughs> Appalachia at 13.5. The rate of uh, New Netherland, uh, that is New York City area, is 3.8. So, 15.6 gun deaths per 100,000 people in the Deep South, 3.8 in New York City. 
Someone living in the most rural counties of South Carolina is more than three times as likely to be killed by gunshot than someone living in equally rural counties of New York's Adirondacks or the impoverished rural counties facing Mexico. Uh, that is the lower reaches of the Rio Grande. And this is all out of the article. It's well worth a read, uh, and I will put a link to it in the show notes so you can read it all. But as you can see, there's huge differences in when and how guns are used between these regional cultures. And they are, as we might expect, you can, you can lump them into those, that big north-south paradigm that we talk about. In the south, guns are much more likely to come out than they are in the north. And it's not, it's, that is a Republican and Democrat uh, thing in the sense that the Republican Party is the party of the south and the Democrats are the party of the north. But it is not a Republican or a Democrat thing necessarily when we talk about within a state, are the people who vote Republican more likely to use guns or the Democrats? No, that's more about where that state is located in this cultural map. The upshot is that culture handed down generation by generation, whether the people there were born there or migrated, that is the driving force determining how and when guns are used. When personal honor is valued in those places where personal honor is primary, then guns come into play to settle disputes of honor. Where community is ranked higher than the individual, guns stay in the proverbial holster longer. Here's where we're going for the bulk of this episode, though. Population. So we heard earlier that in the Deep South and Greater Appalachia, that's where guns are used the most. It's where they have the highest gun death rate. Woodard just happens to mention that his team has also broken down those cultural regions by population, calculated how many people live in these constructs. And this is fantastic because again, I mean, you and I don't have the time. I do not have the Excel spreadsheet handy to list every county in the United States and then assign it to a particular cultural region. And then we can go gather the gun death rates by county, smooth those into our regional county counts, and not my bailiwick and probably not yours. But Woodard and his folks did it, and in doing so, they had to come up with population counts. And here at the Campus of Power, about more than just you know rehashing Woodard's American nations, my theory is that American politics are not just a battle between these colonial cultures, but that battle is defined by shifts in population. The center of American power moves around as the people in America move from place to place, thus dragging that compass of power towards one regional culture or another. And for a century, most Americans lived in that broad cultural alliance known as the North. That includes New York City, that includes the Yankees of New England, Massachusetts, Michigan, and it includes the Midlands, which is a, started by the Quakers in Pennsylvania and stretches way out uh, into the Midwest. Luckily for us, we not only have the population of each of these places, but a brief summary from the man himself, Cullen Woodard. So I'm just going to read to you, by order population, what each of these nations are or the regions. And we're going to start with the most populous and work our way down. And I think you're going to start to see the pattern here. Greater Appalachia, population 59 million. 
settlers overwhelmingly from war-ravaged Northern Ireland, Northern England, and the Scottish Lowlands, were deeply committed to personal sovereignty and intensely suspicious of external authority. Number two, Yankeedom, 55.8 million. Founded by Puritans who sought to perfect earthly society through social engineering, individual denial for common good, and the assimilation of outsiders. The common good ensured by popular government took precedence over individual liberty when the two were in conflict. Deep South, population 43.5 million, established by English Barbadian slave lords who championed classical republicanism modeled on the slave states of the ancient world, where democracy was the privilege of the few and subjugation and enslavement the natural lot of the many. The Midlands, population 37.7 million, founded by English Quakers who believed in humans' inherent goodness and welcomed people of many nations and creeds. Pluralistic and organized around the middle class, ethnic and ideological purity never a priority, government seen as an unwelcome intrusion. El Norte, population 33.3 million, borderlands of Spanish-American empire so far from Mexico City and Madrid that it developed its own characteristics, independent, self-sufficient, adaptable, and work-centered often sought to break away from Mexico to become an independent buffer state annexed into the U.S. instead. Far West, population 28.7 million. Extreme environments stopped Eastern cultures in their path, so settlement largely controlled by distant corporations or federal government via deployment of railroads, dams, irrigation, and mines. Exploited as an internal colony with lasting resentments. New Netherland, population 18.8 million, Dutch founded on, and it retains the characteristics of 17th century Amsterdam, a global commercial trading culture, materialistic, multicultural, and committed to tolerance and the freedom of inquiry and conscience. Left Coast, founded by New Englanders who came by ship and farmers, prospectors, and fur traders from the lower Midwest by wagon, it's a fecund hybrid of Yankee utopianism and the Appalachian emphasis on self-expression and exploration. Tidewater, population 12.6 million, founded by lesser sons of landed gentry seeking to recreate the semi-feudal manoral society of English countryside. Conservative with strong respect for authority and tradition, this culture is rapidly eroding because of the small physical size and the massive federal presence around D.C. and Hampton Roads. Who's first in that list? The Appalachians. Look, for 60 years, the population of the United States has been moving south. And between that broad cultural coalition we think of as the North and the South, that's where you get the Appalachians. They are located, uh, you look at the map, but they run from Western Pennsylvania and then on a sort of Southwest track all the way into North Texas. And that big swath has a lot of people in it. And it's also where people from the North would end up before they got to the deep South. Now, we've been talking about the Appalachians frequently. I've been remarking like, man, every episode we have to talk about the Appalachians, the Scotch-Irish. Well, it turns out there's a quantifiable reason for that. They are the number one cultural group in the United States. There's more of them than anybody else. A plurality of Americans are Appalachians culturally. These are the Borderlanders, the Ulster Scots. Remember that England and Scotland and Ireland were at war for a very, 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 very long time. And it wasn't until that middle ground between when they started the American, the British started the American colonies and when the American colonies broke away and became independent. In between those two events, the United Kingdom was formed and Scotland, England, Ireland became one nation. 
When that happened, there was no longer a use for keeping lots of people on the border ready to fight at any moment. So the folks who were in those areas, the the borderlands of Scotland and England, the folks over in Northern Ireland, suddenly they faced a lot of taxes. The landlord said you had to get going and they headed for North America. They were the redheaded stepchildren of British culture and they became the redheaded stepchildren of American culture. I'd like to demonstrate sort of the the high regard with which folks <laughs> viewed the Appala- the soon-to-be Appalachians uh, with a, a quote from T.M. Devine's The Scottish Clearances, which uh, covers that period of dispossession from 1600 to 1900. And towards the end, he kind of summarizes some of the, uh, what at the time would have been thought of as racial attitudes towards the quote-unquote Celtic people of Scotland and Ireland. Schemes of compulsory emigration were introduced to transport the redundant population across the seas to Canada and Australia, from there never to return. There can be little doubt that racist dogma also scarred the history of this period. The correspondence of relief officials, government servants, trustees of estates and opinion columns in some Scottish newspapers abound with references to the lazy, feckless and inadequate Celts. There you go. They are known in the United States as hillbillies, as rednecks, which was a reference to a Scottish partisans' neckwear, an actual redneckerchief, and their poverty. Now, I'm not going to get into the whole history here because we're going to talk about population, but uh, it's just like a continuing theme throughout history is when people from more like Southern English culture, which would be the Puritans in the United States, the Yankees, walk in and see the kind of living conditions that were evident in Scotland 250 years ago or evident in Appalachia today. They are always gobsmacked. The Yankees themselves, that is the descendants of the parliamentarians in England, southern England, in the United States, they're in the north, and they have set the standard for what is uh, a premier American and premier American business. They have the Ivy League schools like Harvard. They were the first tycoons and millionaires. Literally, the words had to be invented to explain who these people were in, in the Yankee North. Uh, big names in American business from the 20th century and the 19th century, like Ford, GM, IBM, GE, those are Yankee businesses. The smaller northern regions up there also punch above their weight culturally. It's not just about how many people they have. It's like, how influential are they in the culture? The left coast, where I live now, which stretches you know from around San Francisco all the way north into uh, southern Alaska... That little stretch, which is one of the smaller, smaller regions in terms of population, has all the tech companies. The entire internet is run by that cultural group that includes Apple, Google, Microsoft, Facebook, Twitter. Even if Elon Musk owns it, it's a left coast company. Similarly, uh, New York City, that New Netherlands character we heard about earlier, That's the home of Wall Street, where all the money is. It's where every TV station is. It's where every book publisher is. It's where Broadway is. And Hollywood is an offshoot of the Broadway culture of New York City. They have a very loud voice. What does Appalachia have? They've got country music and bourbon. But it's coming up. 
and so are its neighbors in the Southern Coalition. Woodard's American Nations Lab uh, crunched the population numbers from 2010 to 2020 to see what is going on in terms of growth. And it's very consistent with everything we've been saying here on the Compass of Power. The South is growing like gangbusters, and the North is not, tipping the center of power away from the liberal coalition of the North. Here are the fastest growing regions in the United States, according to that analysis. Number one, the Spanish Caribbean, which is Southern Florida. Uh, we did. I think when we're talking about like who was against Kevin McCarthy becoming Speaker of the House, there were a couple Republicans from this section that's kind of in the Miami area, and it's just it's literally off the map compared to the rest of the United States. It has 8.2 million people in it, but it's strongly influenced by the Spanish culture that dominates the Caribbean, less so than the Deep South uh, culture that we see in places like Mississippi and Alabama. Second to them is the Far West, what Colin Woodard calls the Far West. I call it the Dry West because it's not as far west as the West Coast, for Pete's sakes. But this is where uh, we're talking Utah, Colorado, Wyoming, those places where uh, the land, the sea, the sky is mostly run by corporations or the federal government. It's going up fast. 10.4% increase from 2020, from 2010 to 2020, now has 30.3 million people in it. Left coast is number three. That's where we just talked about, the West Coast, the, the tech people. Deep South after them, then Tidewater, Water, then Greater Appalachia. Which, by the way, as I mentioned here, it says that the population of Greater Appalachia in this uh, breakdown is 61.5 million. Slight discrepancy from what was in that recent article. Uh, but from there, you start getting to like more moderate growth. Uh, greater Appalachia had 7.9% growth from 10 to 20 and from there you just go up. But what what do we notice about that list of the fastest growing areas? Uh, Southern Florida, the dry west, uh, deep south, tidewater, Appalachia. That's the entire Southern coalition. Everything we think of as being like Dixieland, the Confederacy, the, the south of the United States, that conservative area that is the heartland of the Republican Party today, it's all in the top tier of growth for the United States. The only part of liberal America, of what we would call the northern side of that coalition that is growing rapidly, is the left coast, which is why left coast politics, uh, Facebook politics, Twitter politics, uh, Gavin Newsom, governor of California, former mayor of San Francisco, that style of liberalism is becoming ascendant because that's the only part of the liberal coalition that's adding people rapidly. Okay, after we get into that part, we have, um, so who's growing kind of at a steady place? A steady clip would be Greater Polynesia, a.k.a. Hawaii, uh, El Norte, which is that Southwest coalition that's uh, part of the original Spanish colonialism in parts of New Mexico, Arizona, Texas, Southern California. Uh, after that, uh, First Nation, which is a very, very small bit, but I'm going to mention them here. They only have 59,000 people, but that is the vast swath of northern Canada uh, that is actually still under uh, mostly tribal control. Mm -hmm. Then who's not growing at all? Like we're talking in the 3% category, which is literally like a third of how fast uh, the South is growing. We're talking about the Midlands, which is that middle America, Iowa, Pennsylvania bit. New France, which is, uh, well, that's actually part of the Southern Coalition. That's New Orleans. It's very small, 2.7 million people. And then Yankee Dumb. Yankee Dumb is coming in dead last. 
So that original part that, um, you know, uh, what do we want to, I'm trying to call up a stereotypical image here, but like factory worker who built cars in Detroit, that, that type of American, the guy who uh, had a pension, who worked in a large factory, who grew up somewhere in Ohio, right? That part of America is not going nearly as fast as the people who own uh, stores or hotels in Southern Florida. What I hope you're taking away from this is that there are big differences in these broad regional cultures that we don't even talk about most of the time in our national news national newscast. One of those differences is gun violence. It is how people view the use of guns, uh, when it is appropriate to lash out, when it's not appropriate. And I'm not saying anybody thinks it's appropriate to go on a shooting spree. I'm just saying that in a society where it is generally more acceptable to defend your honor with lethal means, then in that society, the people who are on the far edge who are going to lash out there's going to be more of that. And that is what Woodard found is that there's a markedly higher rate of gun deaths in the Southern coalition in Appalachia and in the deep South. And what I want to add to Woodard's point is that that's a part of America that's growing. That's where American politics is headed. So we are all there. I, I sincerely believe there's no one who's happy with this rash of seemingly randomized killings and just atrocities when it comes to attacking schools. Nobody likes that. But to approach the problem from a Yankee perspective, where there's far less gun violence, or a perspective of New York City, where let's be clear, a lot of people are shot in New York City, but per capita, it's much lower than you would see in the Deep South. But to take solutions that work there and try and apply it to where most Americans are moving, which is the South, it's not going to work. We need a solution that will work inside the cultures that are more comfortable with guns. That's my point. It is Now, uh, we may come back to this, but I will argue that I don't care yeah, I mean, you could be living in the roughest, toughest, most warrior-like uh, culture on earth. And if your children are randomly being attacked, eventually you're going to change things. So I am in no way saying that people in Appalachia, whether they be, now some of them are really active. And we talked about some of the the legislators in Tennessee who were protesting on the Tennessee House floor and got in a lot of trouble from the dominant Republicans because they didn't want to hear that. Well, those people are fired up, but there are, I guarantee you, also Republicans in the South that are very concerned about it. The question is, how are we nationally or regionally or at the state level going to negotiate uh, an answer to gun violence that is culturally appropriate, meaning appropriate within the context of these regional cultures we've talked about today? I don't know the answer. I'm just trying to reframe it for you today so that when we next time you hear about the big debate about gun control or gun violence or shootings, maybe you can think in the back of your head, well, that is a totally different problem in some parts of the country than it is in others. And really, even though they don't control Hollywood or the news media, even though like Appalachia 
doesn't have a lot of voice in American politics writ large in terms of the debate. It has a big voice in terms of the number of people who live there and cast votes. All right, that's it for today. I appreciate you listening, and uh, we'll be back next week. As always, please tell your family and your friends, if you have family or friends, I don't know. I don't want to, like, presume, but assuming that you do, please tell them. And thanks for listening.